April 8, 2012. Uh, this is a special First Fruits lecture, so we're going to be setting aside James 2 for today, obviously. And I've done so many of these now. Golly, I started to count them, but I've done so many of these uh, First Fruits uh, lectures that I thought I'd try something slightly different, um, just to just to try to keep it. Uh, it's difficult. Let me just say this: I get a lot of pressure every year to do the same thing over and over and over again because many people haven't heard it, and they think that um, that that Easter is a Christian uh, holiday. Easter is not a Christian holiday. It is not a Christian word. It's a Babylonian word. It's a pagan word, and it not necessarily is on this day. But that nonetheless doesn't stop people from wanting me to go and rant and rave about that. And, and, uh, but as I've gotten older, my ranting capability is starting to wane. So but we'll try something a little slightly different. Hope it works out. Uh, this is first fruits, and, and that means it's the third feast day of the Lord's seven feast days. As you know, I have Passover, right? And you should be able to do this. At rote, and I have unleavened bread. It's not UNLV uh, college, unleavened bread. Hey, then I have first fruits. These first three are very important because they're in the crucifixion week. And then I have Shavuot, or weeks, if you will. Uh, trumpets, which is, of course, the most important one because I play the trumpet, sort of. I'm a hack, I admit. Trumpet, atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, and uh, tabernacles are uh, dwellings, I can't spell, tabernacles. You get the picture. Those are the seven, and those seven, very, very important. Wow, my board doesn't erase. Somebody, Somebody cleaned it. Yes. Well, that could be problematic. Did you clean both sides? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, um, what did you clean it with? Oh no! What did my wife tell you to use? Huh? Windex? Um. Well, obviously we're not erasing today, are we? <laughs> okay. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. As you know, Christ chose this one, first fruits. This is the one that he chose. I can't circle it, but that's the one that he chose, uh, upon which he would raise himself up, John 3.19. He made sure of all the days he could have picked that he picked first fruits. That feast day, the third one, that's the day that he chose, the day that he purposed, that he designed before creation, he says, before the foundations, Revelation 13.8, before the created order, matter, energy, uh, space, and time, before anything was created that we would recognize as physical, he had his purposed plan where he would raise himself up on first fruits, the feast day of first fruits. Um, before the foundations, 13.8, it says, is the lamb slain? The Passover pattern, if you will. You might have to wipe the whole board there and see if that will work. And if not, leave that uh, special cloth that you have. Huh? I, I need to erase. I need to. You're not getting out of this. <laughs> okay. 
The Passover pattern is established before the foundations, before matter, energy, space, and time. The lamb slain. Need to know that. Every time somebody says, well, he, it's happenstance or he just, just a coincidence. There is no coincidence here. He's creator God. This is the day that he picked. What's the obvious question then? Why this day? He could have picked any day, but this is the one. Why did he put first fruits on this day, as a matter of fact? And today is the resurrection, uh, first fruits suffering, uh, if the day is re- the resurrection, resurrection and first fruits linked together. Suffering death is on the Passover. Entonement burial is on unleavened bread. The raising, the resurrection is on first fruits. That's the Passover pattern as it applies to the um, crucifixion week or one element of it. And many great scholars devoted much of their lives um, to this pattern. You can find just tremendous work on it. Years and years, lifetimes, working out the details of this pattern, especially on these first three feast days. As I said, the week of the crucifixion, particularly attentive. And they searched the scriptures to find, and then they wanted to assign everything that has ever been recorded in the Bible to have occurred on one of these three feast days. Actually, they did it on all seven But these three got most of the attention, and then everything that has any relationship to a feast day. So with respect to uh, first fruits, these are the things that mostly come up when you start to study first fruits. Noah's Ark came to rest on the day, on the feast day of first fruits, the resurrection day. Israel crossed the Red Sea. Okay, on the first on first fruits, uh, Israel ate in the promised land for the first time. So eating in the promised land, and that means that the manna stopped. So I have the eating beginning and the manna stopping, and then I have Haman uh, hanged on first fruits. Those are the four. Now, you'll see some really good work on uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Joseph of Rama. Who is Joseph of Rama? Joseph of Rama, Arimathea, Rama, the same thing. Joseph, uh, uh, who rose to second to the Pharaoh, right? The beloved son of the twelve, the one rejected, put in the pit, uh, put into slavery, who rises up to save the world, who speaks to his uh, eleven brothers in a different uh, language so they don't recognize him the first time they come. All of that's typological of Christ and Israel. That Joseph is Joseph of Rama, Joseph of Arimathea, also Joseph of Rama. So the two Josephs uh, fit together and they have a first fruits application. I don't put them on because these are the most prominent four, uh, according to most uh, scholarship today. Uh, at least most scholars conclude uh, thus when it comes to the feast day of first fruits. And therefore, they're placed side by side with Christ's resurrection or they should be every first fruits. Uh, because when you investigate the four of them, what are they right off the bat? They are four pieces of a whole. They each have something to say about what is going on in first fruits and why he picked first fruits. Okay? They explain why Christ 
chose to resurrect himself on first fruits, especially when you investigate and add them and compile them together. So, Israel passing through the Red Sea, that's pretty obvious, right? Passing through, I have, I hope this erases, I have the heaped up Red Sea. You ever look at any physics of that? How much water was heaped up as two million or more Israelites go across the Red Sea? How much water do I have to heap up in order to get uh, two and a half million goats, chickens, and it's a wagon train, essentially, going through there. How high do you think that water had to be? It was hundreds of feet high so they could pass over, pass through. They pass through. They cross over, right? They cross over these heaped-up seas that are impending death and judgment, and they get through them safely, and they arrive on dry land on first fruits or on resurrection day. So I hope that you can see the obvious typology there. Because who is chasing after them? Pharaoh, right? And he is also an incredible um, type in his own regard. But his army comes through and they do not make it through. Clearly, they are drowned in the seas of judgment. They are dead. Physically dead. Probably the most clear is Israel passing through. Getting through death going across death and landing safely on the other side. That's a picture for you. You go through death and you pass over and you get to the other side and you are not subject to judgment. First and foremost, that is what's happening on first fruits every year, or should be at least with some respect. Some, some mention of it should occur. That's the one that everyone, I hope, knows. I hope I'm just repeating things that you know but realize we're on the Internet, right? And many, many people, believe it or not, listen to me on the Internet. And why is that? Because they don't want to live in Alaska where we set the record for snow. They don't want that. Why? They don't like the snow and the darkness. We don't have snakes and scorpions. One of these days I'll do a, Are You a Turtle lecture. Many churches and there are many Christians in the church today are turtles. And understanding that you're a turtle or that you have turtle uh, inclinations is very important because what else is in the church? That's right, scorpions are everywhere. But we don't have those in Alaska, but we have lots of turtles up here. Trust me that. In, a, in an allegorical sense. Anyway, safe passage through death, the overcoming of death. Probably the most clear of the four with respect to their to the relationship of Christ's resurrection. Haman's hanging, believe it or not, is extraordinarily important and it doesn't get enough time. I'm going to do that a little bit today just to get it started for you. Haman's hanging. You don't go through Haman being hanged on first fruits without bringing up who? That's right. Judas. I have a relationship between what Haman is doing and what Judas is doing. They're both doing the same thing. What is it that Judas is intending? Well, let me help you. What is it that Haman is intending to do? If you know your Old Testament. He's intending to do what? He wants to exterminate the Jews. So therefore, what is Judas trying to do? Exterminate the Jews. Haman is a type of Judas. Judas is the antitype, if you will, or the fulfillment of what Haman illustrates in the Old Testament. And their hanging is very, very closely connected. I would expect Judas to hang himself because Haman was hanged. It makes perfect sense. Both have the same plan. In case you have 
an error in your view of Judas, you must make sure that any Judas position that you, you accumulate over time fits with Haman. And obviously this becomes immediately complicated because I go into Zechariah 11 where I have the delivering of Christ and I have the throwing of the silver and again the hanging of Judas. All of that occurs in the context of Zechariah 11. And, and what being um, those last three, the delivering of Christ, the throwing of the silver, the hanging of, of Judas, uh, that's what I call uh, one of my lectures where I titled it the 13 Acts of Judas. And for those of you keeping score on the Internet, I will do it so that you won't email me. Uh, number one, protesting or leading the rebellion over the anointing oil. Judas is the one that leads that rebellion and identifies himself as the leader of the apostles at that point. They do what he says. He's extremely powerful. He's also, the, without question, uh, <laughs> a beautiful man. You'll get that from Absalom. Two, the entering, or what is also called the combining with Saint, Satan. Judas is the only one ever entered by Satan uh, at this time. Eventually another, or the same, is entered by Satan, right? But at, right now, Judas is the only one to whom it can be said that Satan entered him. So that's called the entering, or the combining with Satan. And that was a preparation. The purpose of that preparation was to do what? Exterminate the Jews. And it was also evidence of failure, because why? Because the extermination of the Jews couldn't be accomplished then. They mis, they erred. They were not aware of what was going to happen. Um, the number three is the is it I question. Those are the, uh, by the way, the uh, 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 anointing oil are the first words recorded in, in Scripture about Judas. They become very important, that rebellion. Uh, the the it is I or is it I question of an extraordinary question that he asks there very complex and uh, she demonstrates the intellect that he has that it far exceeds anything the apostles have in in, in total the eating of the first piece of bread okay which is the bread of honor it's the bread of love it is the bread of friendship at the Passover meal Judas was sitting in the seat of love the seed of friendship, when Christ hands him that first piece of, of bread, the bread of love. Uh, and of course, you know, at that time, he has Satan uh, entered inside of him. Number five, going in out into the darkness. He is cast out by Christ. Cast out, just like Matthew 4, the throwing out of Satan. Away with you, Satan, the casting out of Judas into the darkness. He is forced into go and do. That's a commandment. You don't resist that. So Judas going out into the darkness. Number six, negotiating the Zechariah 12 shepherd's price. He knows Zechariah 12 better than any human being that has ever lived. He knew that he had to negotiate a Zechariah 12, 30 pieces of silver. He also knew he had to throw it at the temple potter. Okay? Very important. He didn't miss a beat there. He, Judas is so powerful and so intelligent. Remember, who's inside of him? Satan's inside of him. The combination of the two of them is extraordinary. And they have total control over the Pharisees. Pharisees are idiots. And they know it. What do they intend to do with the Pharisees, by the way, Judas and Satan? What's their plan? 
Oh, yeah. Exterminate them. Same plan, type, anti-type. Number seven, the holding of the money box. Why does this incredibly powerful man want that money box? What's he put in it, by the way? He puts those 12 pieces of silver in it. How come? What's his plan? The kissing of Christ. Number eight. Number nine, the delivering of Christ. Get out of your minds. Get out of your doctrine. Judas was able to betray the omniscient God. That is not possible just based on the word omniscient. The word means delivering. And you will see, by the way, that it is obvious that it's delivering because of the feast day of firstfruits. The throwing of the Zechariah 12 silver at the potter. That's number 10. And and again, he had that figured out. He was fully aware of what that signified. Who throws the 12 or the 30 pieces of silver at Zechariah 12? Who is the one that throws it? The Messiah throws it. He's identifying himself, Judas is, as the Messiah when he throws that. And then number 11, he attempts to stop the crucifixion. It's called the innocent man ploy or the regretting. Not remorse, regret. The word is regret. The innocent man ploy or subversion. Number 12, where he hangs himself. And number 13, when he goes to his own place. You place them together and you end up with this incredible motive of Judas. Uh, 13 is rebellion, as you know. It's the number of rebellion or the number of Satan or the number of the Antichrist. Anyway, the hanging of Judas and the hanging of Haman, the hanging of Absalom, are usually studied by those who seek to understand the feast day of first fruits. That's why I bring it up. Someday I'll repeat the 13 acts of Judas and the fivefold lies of Satan. Some or both are on the internet somewhere. Okay, next is the ceasing of manna and the ending of the manna stage, that which descends from heaven. Okay, it descends from heaven. It's pure. It's beautifully white. It clearly is a picture of Christ. It is, it is a heaven sent gift. It is living bread, if you will. It is a picture of Christ and identified as so in the Bible. But that ends on first fruits when Israel enters the Isri, it's I-S-R. There we go. Spell it right. That ends when uh, Israel enters into the promised land on the feast day of first fruits. Much, by the way, to the delight of those who notice ends and beginnings. Uh, uh, such as when Adam and Eve were, that's, were driven out of the garden. That was the end of something and the beginning of something. Same as this. So if you like to study beginnings and ends, first fruit is a beginning and end with the eating and the manna. Uh, you know, and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, that is the, the beginning of something. The marriage ceremony of God in Israel occurs there. That is the beginning of the marriage of God and the nation of Israel. The Babylonian captivity is the beginning of the age of the Gentiles, right? And of course, we have an end of the age of the Gentiles. It's coming when they when that began in 586 B.C. When that ends, what do we have? We have the millennial kingship of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And of course, the crucifixion is one of the great ends and beginnings. What ended at the crucifixion? The ascension of Christ, the feast day of weeks where he sends the Holy Spirit, things that end, things that begin. So that's what's going on with three. Uh, So we've knocked out all of these pretty much. 
right here, Noah's Ark comes to rest on the feast day of first fruits. So the flood ends, if you will, on that day. So the day of Christ's resurrection is the day, the judgment of the antediluvians, the Nephilim, the violence that filled the earth, the men whose every thought was evil continually, their physical judgment ended on the feast day of first fruits. As were they, that was the end of the angelic host, and they were imprisoned. We'll get to that. That comes back up again, by the way. Two things happened on first fruits with regard to the angelic host that, that fell away and had a, it caused the Nephilimic contamination. One of those things was as they were imprisoned. The other thing is, is they were proclaimed to. Okay? So, these components are pieces of a whole whose purpose it is to, to bring an understanding to the crucifixion week of Christ. Uh, specifically, at least, the day he decided to be resurrected. And notice how I emphasize, I try to at least, uh, his power and authority over his death. He controls every tiny little detail. You've heard me say it many, many times. It is not an accident that Simeon the Cyrenian, who is coming late, coming the opposite direction, has to carry that crossbeam. He is engineering that. Can he carry a piece of wood? Yes. He's God, omnipotent God. So why does he make sure that Simon the Cyrenian carries that piece of wood? Because of the man's name, Simeon. Now you're into accumulating all the Simeons that you can in order to figure out what he's trying to teach you with each and every Simeon. There's Simon Peter, there's Simeon the prophet, there's Simeon the Cyrenian, there's Simeon of the twelve brothers that is, that is imprisoned. So all the Simeons in Scripture go together. It is not an accident that Simeon carries that crossbeam. It's very important that he do. It isn't because Christ can't carry it or he's going to fall down. Today somewhere there's a thousand, oh, there's 20,000 churches today that are preaching that Christ couldn't carry a piece of wood and that he fell down all over the place. And boy, are we lucky he almost didn't make it to his assigned place where he was going to crucify. That is everywhere today. It was really close. The shot went up. It rimmed around. Oh, no. It, it's going to fall off. Ooh, whistle. It's a lane violation. We had to shoot again. That's what's being preached today. And that is, I don't know what to call it. I could write it on the board, but I don't know what to call it. Because now I'm recorded a lot. But have no position ever that calls into question Jesus Christ's authority and control over his crucifixion ever in that regard over anything. He is in absolute control. He is creator God. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent always. If you have a position that says he's falling down from the beating, the beating had no effect on him. That's the point of the beating. The evidence that the beating didn't affect him was a centurion's. How many crucifixions had they done? They're the executioners. That's what their job is. They get paid. How many Israelites had they crucified? Thousands. This is the, these guys are professionals. It's what they do. They tried to beat him to death so they wouldn't have to go outside and hang him. A lot more work. Throw him in a ditch. They were unable to beat him to death. Then they were unable to control him after they beat him. He went where he wanted to go. He said what he wanted to say. And I make the case with the uh, 
with the crossbeam, he's not only carrying it, he's using it as a pointer, or if you will, a baton. Things are not going well for the centurions, and they say so. They're going, there has never been a death like this man's death, which makes sense. There's never been a life like Christ's life. There's never been a birth like Christ's birth. There has never been a death like Christ's death. If you have his death the same as everybody else's death, then you are in error. I can't say it any better than that. So have no position ever that calls into question of Jesus Christ's authority, his power, uh, certainly with respect to his crucifixion week, but no other place either. That's called the kenosis view. But, uh, you know, I recognize that this disrespect is now the norm in our society, especially our churches. The godhood of Christ has vanished in the contemporary church of today. These, this is the age of Laodicea, or what we call the vomit church, and especially it happens on this day, first fruits, which is why I have such a tough time here. This and Christ Mass, as you know. Both of them are a mess, doctrinally. Whose fault is it? It's the church's fault. We don't care. At least now when you go on the Internet and you, you Google Ishtar Easter, you will find the pagan references. Uh, you wouldn't have been able to do that a few years ago. That Just no one did it because no one wanted to tell the truth about the paganism that is in the word Ishtar. And what it means. But it's critical to note, by the way, that all three persons of the triune Godhood, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or as the Hebrews say, the Lord God, the angel of the Lord God, and the Spirit of the Lord God. Their way of saying it, I believe, is less confusing than ours. Because we have a tendency to assign rank um, outside of time. You cannot assign rank to the triune Godhead. Um, they're all one. They are three persons in one. They're triune. They are the us of Genesis, the Elohim, the plural. And all three participate in the resurrection of the body of Christ. You would expect that, wouldn't you? Of all three, the Bible says, they resurrected Jesus Christ. All three participate in his immersion. You know that. Don't call it his baptism because what? Even though John the Baptist did it, John the Baptist said, he knew really clear. I don't baptize you. He knew what baptism meant. You don't qualify to be baptized. Why didn't he qualify to be baptized? He had no sin. He had nothing to confess of. Why is he going to, why is he immersing himself? See, I can now use the heaped water as the Jordan River. Why does he immerse himself on that spot? He makes sure he goes in on that spot, the exact same spot, that the axe handle was, the exact same spot the tree branch was thrown in, the exact same spot that the Ark of the Covenant... Boy, I'm doing really good drawing things today. It's a shame I can't erase them. The exact same spot the Ark of the Covenant goes through. Why does he pick that spot? It has everything to do with that spot. Same thing with first fruits. Why does he pick first fruits? He's in absolute authority over every element, little detail that he does. Have no position ever that says otherwise. 
All three of the triune Godhead are participating in the driving out of Adam and Eve before they eat of the tree of life. All three participate in the ten plagues. All three are one, Deuteronomy 6.4. Okay, you got that? I hope you do. So let's go and read what we have to read on first fruits. John 2, 18 through 21. As I beat you to death with this. Which is my job. Were you expecting a warm, fuzzy, friendly, happy first fruits lecture? Boy, you should know better than that. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign? Oh my goodness. Whatever you do, don't do this. Purge it out of your life. They're sign seekers. And he tells them right off the bat, evil and adulterous generations seek after signs. So what do I think of the signs and wonders movement that's in the church today? I'm not impressed. I know what it is. I'm sorry if I've offended you. No, I'm not. That is a fake sorry, as you know. What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I raise it up. I will raise it up. That's very important. I need to circle that more. This is, by the way, the sign of Jonah, as you know. Matthew 12, 38 through 39. The sign of Jonah, three days, three nights, in, is in his plan. Ask why. Why does he have this insistence on three days and three nights as his sign that he will give? They don't want the sign of Jonah. They do not want the death, burial, resurrection. They do not want the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, three days and three nights, resurrect on first fruits, die at three o'clock on Passover, and toned on unleavened bread. They don't want that. What do they want? They want a sign. What's their sign that they want? Something cool. You know, blow something up. Knock the moon out of something. Do something to prove you are God to us. And he calls that evil. You find yourself praying at night saying, God, if only you'll send me a sign, I will, um, I'll, you know, I'll show up for church once. Well, what are you? What's the word that I want for you? It starts with an S. Yeah, it has a T in it. What's What comes next? Okay, I'll help you. That's what you are. That is illiterate. It is unjustified arrogance. You are demanding of God that He do what for you, little tiny cockroach that we are? Prove to me that you exist. What would his, you know, I just always imagine his response. His response should be uh, the converse of that. How about you prove to me that you exist? Good luck with that, by the way. Think that through while I go on with the sermon. This is where Christ, by the way, says very important things, John 2, 18 with regard to his crucifixion week. Again, this sign. What is proved by this sign of Jonah? 
Why would he wait this amount of time? He wants to wait three days and three nights. And then he says, I will raise it up. What is the it in the sentence? I'll go on and finish reading. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. What do they think the it is? They think it's the temple. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. What is the it there in the sentence? He describes his body as what? It. You should describe your body as what? It. I have lots of people describe my body as it. That will happen to you as you get to be my age. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Okay? He has the power to raise himself up. He says, I will raise it up. It is the body. He has the power to resurrect himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, is what he asks later on in John with regard to Lazarus at the tomb of Lazarus. Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? If you do, you're what? Saved. If you don't, you're what? Lost. Powerful question. Sorry to ruin your day. Not really. It's my job. No other, and by the way, it's the life and the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the life. It's singular, exclusive. No other has this capability. So let's ask some obvious questions. What is required to resurrect a dead body? I have medical professionals in here. What's required? I have a dead body. I have to resurrect it. How do I fix it? What do I have to do to fix it? What is required to raise up your own dead body? Notice he says, I will raise up my own dead body. It. I will raise it up after my three days and three nights. My sign of Jonah. So what's the obvious question? Is he inside his dead body? No, he's not. Where is he? Where did he go? He's disembodied, isn't he? Disembodied, he has the power to resurrect his own body. Now, I want you to notice the continuity of the soul aspect that is implicit. This is implicitness, a wonderful word for you to use. I want you to see the implicitness of this, the continuity of the soul. The I is separate from the body. You notice that? You are separate from your body. The body is the it. You are the you. So the mind, if you will, the soul spirit, and all of us instinctively know that our minds are not physical, that they are separate from the physical body. We get that. Uh, He will make his body. Notice how I say that. He will make his body. Don't say he's going to let his body. He will make his body remain dead for three days, three nights, and after the sign of Jonah is complete, he will raise it. His own body up. The body is an it. Hard to get that. You had God telling you that it is an it. So when the body is dead, every funeral, I should say, that's an it. It hurts people, and so I don't do it. But I know it. I hope somebody on my death will 
have an open casket. I think that would be gruesome. I'd like it put on the pool table. And I would like it referred to as it. And certainly not him. Certainly not Steve. It. The body is an it. If nothing helps you get through the death of somebody, I will raise it up, I hope does. He is making it clear that uh, the physical body, the it, does not have any power. He has the power. The po- he doesn't say the body will raise itself up. He says he will raise it, and he is separate from the physical body. He has a physical body. He is his spirit. You have a physical it. You are your soul, right? We know, of course, that Christ makes a proclamation while he is disembodied to the fallen angelic host. And he does that on the feast day of first fruits, uh, I believe. Uh, maybe not. We can argue about that. But he does make a proclamation, 1 Peter 3.19. And again, notice that God never assigns identity to the physical. I want to keep beating that in. God always calls us living souls. You are always called a living soul by God. He always calls himself a spirit. And our identity is not in our body. Our self is in our spirit soul. Also note that Christ said he would raise up his body, but he didn't say that he would make a different one. Because he could have, couldn't he? But he will raise that one up. It. Didn't say, I will make it. You kill that one, which you couldn't, by the way. But let's hypothetically say that you are this word. What's this word for everybody listening on the Internet? That's right, stupid. Let's just say that you think that somehow human beings can kill the body of God. Hypothetically, I will cede that to you, knowing full well that it is indefensible. But let's say that we go ahead and take your premise that you could kill the body of God, and he doesn't say that if you kill my body, I'll go make a new body. If you kill that one, I'll make a new one of those. I'll just keep making new ones. He doesn't say that. He says, I'll keep raising this one up. Or in this case, he'll raise it up once. Because that's all he needs to do. Again, notice that God never assigns identity to the physical. And he doesn't make a different one. So ask why. Why does he maintain some of the continuity of the body? Because that's what he does. By the way, us dispensationalists really like that a lot. We notice that every time he moves along, ends and begins something, he always takes part of what is left behind and moves it forward. He doesn't take the whole thing. He takes a little part of it. You really see that in the millennium. What's in the millennium, by the way, that puzzles people all the time? That's right, animal sacrifice. So somehow, but it doesn't mean the same thing. It's a piece that goes forward. The law of Moses went forward in the church age. Pieces of it, not the entirety, not the overall meaning. Why do I have animal sacrifice in the millennial age? It's a thousand years. Why do animals have to die? Is there death in the millennium, by the way? Yeah. I got murder in the millennium. And at the end of the millennium, I got a war. How many people die in that war? Billions. So there's always something that moves along. When something ends, he always reaches back and grabs a small piece of it, if you want to think of it that way, and brings it forward into the new area. So, he keeps his wounds. Did you notice that? John 20, 26 through 29. He keeps his scars. He shows them to Thomas. And admittedly, the wounds reveal his Shekinah glory because it freaked everybody out when he showed them. 
Matthew uh, 17, uh, Shekinah glory gives you a picture. When he opens himself up, you see the Shekinah glory inside of him. Okay, Also the glory of God, if you will. And he does that for Thomas and the disciples. And, and uh, so he keeps his wounds. I submit that the wounds and the scars remain. Exodus 21, the piercings that he have are forever. So ask the obvious question, why does he do that? Uh, and by the way, Thomas was convinced. Thomas saw those wounds and he was convinced. And he responded with the greatest confession a man can make. My Lord and my God. Because he knew this was Creator God. All he had to do was look at those wounds. And he went, okay. So there's something really significant about looking at those wounds. He was able to tell this is God Himself in the flesh. And as an aside, realize that these men were not willing to accept the resurrection of Christ, were they? And one of them didn't think it was real. Christ had to go to them and show his wounds. Okay? They wanted proof. And Christ went to them and forcefully demonstrated that he, his body resurrected. And he says this to Thomas. He says, Thomas... Because you have seen me, you've seen my wounds and stuck your hands in and looked me over. Because you have seen me, you have believed. What's the implied, uh, the implication there? Because you have seen me, you have believed. What's implied? If he didn't see him, wouldn't have believed. It's one of the apostles. Thomas believed only because Thomas had Christ physically before him and was shown forcefully the wounds. It was a physical process and a spiritual process. What I mean by that is he got to see it and then he believed it. And Christ said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, which is only a spiritual process. By the way, who are the not seers and believers? That'd be us. He says, blessed are usin, as we didn't see. Now, really fast, I know I'm watching the time. I am a professional. Let's go to Acts 2.22. Let me read this through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered. Delivered. Not betrayed. Delivered. Judas didn't betray him. Judas delivered him. It's very important. It's Judas the deliverer. Otherwise, you're bringing the omniscience of God in. Okay, I'm off of that now. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, having crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The it in that sentence is death. Three things. I was going to put it on the board, but I can't erase it. I keep bringing that up. Sharon, that's Kathy's fault. Three things. Him, Number one, him being delivered, not betrayed, delivered. Yes, keep beating on it. The delivering of Christ by Judas into the hands of the Pharisees, the need, part of his plan is that he had to be delivered. 
Why didn't he just surrender himself? He didn't want to surrender to himself. He wanted Judas to deliver him. That's critical to his plan. Why? Not betrayal, delivery. It's of great significance and importance. And know that and ask why. What's his name? Yeshua, what's his name? Or Yeshua, whichever you decide. What's that mean? Salvation. Salvation was delivered to the Pharisees by who? By Judas, who has who inside of him? Satan. Satan-Judas combination delivers salvation to the Pharisees. And what do they do with it? They reject it. They're so stupid, they think they can kill him. And God raised him up. Now, this is where you see, it, you have to decide. You can do your own study here. I want you to look at Ephesians 1, 17 and 21. You have to find all three places where the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son individually are assigned the resurrection, and they are assigned the resurrection together. So that's what God raised up is right there. And then this one, I think, is just amazing, because it was not possible that he be held by death. It's not possible. It's impossible for death to hold him. Obvious question. Why is it impossible for death to hold his body? Because you see the problem, I hope. Death and sin are what? They're inseparably linked. They're inseparable. Death requires sin. Sin requires death. Christ has no sin. So how can he die? How does he die? How does he physically die? How do I drive a stake or a spear through God? He has to participate. He must force death to occur. The Bible says he has to give himself up. His life cannot be taken. It's impossible to take his life. So the question of three days and three nights then becomes an issue best resolved from the opposite perspective. Let me say it another way. How did he remain dead for three days and three nights? How did he get dead in the first place? And then how does he remain dead? He has to force himself to be dead. Do you understand that? 72 hours. Better yet, how did he remain dead for 72 minutes or 72 seconds? 7.2 seconds. What power kept his body dead for this predetermined amount of time? Did he wants? He wants his three days and three nights. He wants it. He wants to be delivered. He wants Simon and Serenian to carry the, the cross member. He wants all. He wants to be crucified on top of the skull of Goliath. He makes sure that happens. He makes sure that he is beaten. They beat him and beat him and beat him and couldn't what? Couldn't kill him. Why not? Duh. He's God. No chance they could kill him. He has to give himself up. It takes tremendous power to force his body to die. There's no sin in it. What power kept his body dead for this predetermined amount of time? How much power was required? Again, why this exact amount of time? What's your answer? This is where you get the answer. We have five or six more minutes to go. And if you answer correctly, what shall you get? Cheetos, your own bag. We have plenty. Why this exact amount of time? We can play that song. 
da 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 That, 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 that statement has been made many, many times. What he's saying is, and that's four days. They believe that after four days, the spirit has left the hovering area around the body. The Jewish tradition says so. But he didn't do four days. That's Lazarus. He does three days and three nights. He likes that. He did that with Jonah. I'll help you. Who's watching? Angels are watching. Who's, keep, who's got stopwatches? The angels have stopwatches. They're keeping the time. Satan and his fallen angelic host, or the demons, if you will, uh, they're keeping time. Everyone's got a stopwatch. And so does the unfallen angelic host. They're also watching. They know it's going to be how long. They know it's going to be how long. Three days, three nights. By the way, what's that mean? Cannot possibly be a what? A Friday crucifixion cannot possibly be. That would be this. <laughs> I submit that they knew how long he would remain separated from his body and why. And they knew why this day, first fruits. Because you see, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, the apostles and now the Christian church, we are said to be on display, made a spectacle made a theater for the angels and the men of this world. We are on display. You are on display. Next time you want to do something really crummy, you're on display. He's got the best video surveillance system imaginable. He's omniscient. We are constantly watched. We are the ones who have not seen and yet we believe. Contrast with those who have seen and yet rejected. Who are the ones who have seen and yet rejected? Who are they? That's right. Fallen angelic hosts. They saw him. They saw the heavenly estate. They rejected and rebelled and believed instead the, the lie of Satan. And they got stopwatches. And those who will see great signs and wonders here in the tribulation, they will instead not believe God. They will instead believe the son of perdition. Right? The man hanged. Who hanged himself. The one who comes out of his own place, Revelation 13. They will believe his sign. And the angelic hosts, those who stayed, are comparing us to themselves. There, so this three days and three nights, what do you think? Figure it out. You don't need me. How many three days and three nights have there been? Did Adam have a three days and three nights? We know Christ had a three days and three nights. He's the last Adam or the second federal head or the last federal head. The first federal head, I believe, had a three days and three nights. What did he do for three days and three nights? He contemplated the fate of Eve before he made his decision. So how about the angelic host? Do they have a three days and three nights? By the way, the solution to this is the two witnesses. They lie dead in the street for how long? Three and a half days. How come? Why isn't it clean? Oh, oh. Why isn't it three days and three nights for the two witnesses? It's three and a half days. Oh, man, it'll never work now. We're doomed. 
Why do the two witnesses lay on the ground for three and a half days before they're resurrected? Because it's, yes, very right. It's one day for each year the two witnesses of Revelation 11 were rejected. That is why. One day for each year that the two witnesses of Revelation 11 were rejected. So there's your aha. Rejection is the key to unlocking the sign of Jonah, the three days and three nights. And finally, and I know that's our favorite word, on the feast day of first fruits, Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. The one feast day that could not be kept until Israel made it to the promised land. Okay? Could not be kept. You don't get to keep it. And then it is a statute forever, but you have to wait until you get into the promised land. And on that day, a sheaf of barley, of the barley harvest, is brought up to the high priest, and he waves the sheaf of barley before the Lord. And a male lamb of the first year without blemish is killed and burnt. And then a grain offering, or if you will, a bread offering, is mixed with oil and it's burnt to the Lord. And then there is a drink of wine. What am I talking about now? What is bread and a drink of wine? You're in the communion service, and so I want you to see that. And obviously... Christ is the one sheaf. He's the first of the great harvest that comes because he's the one that's waved. As soon as he's waved, then what can happen? As soon as he's resurrected, what can happen? As soon as he resurrects the it himself, what can happen? As soon as God resurrects him, as soon as the Holy Spirit, the glorious Father, Christ himself resurrects himself, resurrects him, what can happen? He's waved. What can happen now? Then the harvest can come. Why can't the harvest come at any time? Because first we have to decide or we have to determine who's judged and who's not judged. The harvest is the not judged, the believers who have not seen, less the ones who have seen or plus the ones who have seen. Obviously Christ is the one sheep, the first waved. He's a resurrected sheep. Obviously Christ is the lamb who is slain without blemish. He has no sin. Again, you've got to reconcile. How can he die without sin in him? Obviously, Christ is the burnt bread. Obviously, he is the drink offering, the wine. We who are subject to death, we have to have new blood. We have to have new flesh. Our flesh isn't any good. Look at me. Mine's dying. I have dying blood, dying flesh. It's getting worse every day. This is the future. It's coming Thursday. You won't believe how fast you die. Stuns me how fast I've died. And we need new blood and new flesh. It's a medical procedure and he's the only one that has any. He's the only one with any supply of sinless blood, sinless flesh, and he's the willing supplier of it. And First Fruits was written, within in First Fruits is the communion service, which is why we include communion on First Fruits. Bread and wine, flesh and blood, take the cup, take the bread after the sheaf has been waved. That's what it's all about. The resurrection of the first sheaf allows for the harvest. And we be the harvest. We are the other sheaves. So let's rise and be dismissed.